This is IVP. This is The Disruptors, a podcast from InterVarsity Press about how faith is changing culture in unexpected ways. I'm Nancy Wong Yoon. I'm a sociologist, a pop culture expert, and a professor at Viola University. New eyes that look at the world in new ways. New eyes make contact blue, green, and gray. New eyes I realized I never knew. When you realize feelings you trapped inside of you. New eyes see the respect. When I was first asked to host The Disruptors, I was excited, but also hesitant. Uh, I'm not a theologian. I tend to, you know, just kind of do faith in, in my life. And sometimes I think of myself as a folk theologian because, you know, I kind of just uh, use my experience along with, you know, reading the word. All of that together is kind of how I do Christianity. And so I thought, oh my gosh, is this, is this enough to qualify me to host a Christian podcast? Um, but and then I thought about what I really wanted to do if I had a podcast, and that was to interview people, I think, who are culture makers, who are people who are doing amazing things, and that happen to be Christians and are using their faith to motivate themselves to, to change culture in unexpected ways. So in this season, I actually want to, I guess, disrupt the disruptors, right? I want to do something different. I'm, I'm bringing in people of faith who are really kind of like amazing uh, and famous, some of them. And it's just so exciting to be able to talk to folks who are going to be, I think, discussing faith in ways that, that we haven't heard of before because they're not bound by anything. They're, they just are, you know, they're just doing their thing and, and changing the world. And I also want to bring in my friend G. She's a, she's a cognitive scientist, IG, and professor at Cal State LA. And I'm a self-proclaimed sidekick here <laughs> to pump up Nancy. <laughs> Thanks, G. G's the real star here. She's amazing. And um, and you know what, G? My first guest, I can't believe this, is Jean Lewin Yang. Oh, my gosh. My kids are going to be so excited. They sneak in his American-born Chinese and just secretly read it, even though it's not in their section of the books. It's in the <laughs> adult section of the books. Well, he's, I mean, I think his materials are, are you know, they, they span generations and audiences because they have such depth and it's just so exciting to be able to talk to him. And I really wanted to bring him on the show because, you know, when I met him, I mean, I was always a fan and then I met him for the first time in person at Sundance uh-huh. um, and I met him, meaning he didn't know who I was. <laughs> We were Twitter friends, uh, which means nothing, I guess, in terms of I recognized him, but he didn't recognize me. But I was like, when I saw him in line, uh, first of all, I was like, why is so, you know, if you didn't know, Gene Luen Yang is he's a graphic novelist. He does DC Marvel and he's also a MacArthur Award winner, which means he's certifiably genius. Bona fides, man. <laughs> that means you should be able to skip the line, right? Right. I was like, what is he doing in line with me? Like, a, a, you know, a plebeian, a normal person. He should get a lifetime fast pass to every event he ever attends. <laughs> and so I, I was like, oh, my gosh. Hi, Gene. And he looked at me. He's like, hi. And he didn't know who I was. I love that you're fangirling out. <laughs> I just couldn't help myself, right? Because I just, again just such a shock to see him and and also we were both in line for some probably some Asian American film and I just felt so like you know it's cold it's in Park City I was like it's Gene <laughs> and so but later he actually DM'd me on Twitter and said 
oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't recognize you at first, Nancy. And I was like, he did recognize oh, me. MacArthur Genius and, Award yeah, winner he, said, I didn't recognize you. I'm sorry. Oh, yes. And he did, and then he said, yeah, he apologized, which was, I thought, so so humble of him, right? That he, he would apologize to me when, you know, I had no right to expect that he would know who I was. Um, and so I think that, yeah, that I was so excited to be able to talk to someone who is amazing, who is so talented, who is making history, really, you know, and his book, American Born Chinese, was the first graphic novel to ever be nominated for the National Book Award. So the wow. first graphic novel. Groundbreaking. Yeah, was by an Asian American. That is so exciting. So, and it won several uh, prestigious awards, and now it's going to be adapted for a Disney Plus series, right? So exciting. So let's listen. All right. Can you pronounce your name for me just to make sure I don't want to get it wrong? Yeah, it's Jean Lin Yang. Okay, that's what I thought. Okay, perfect. Because, you know, sometimes it's like, because I'm Wang, but I, or it's it's pronounced Wong, but it's spelled Yeah, Wang. I know, I know. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to figure out if I'm supposed to switch or not. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but I haven't, I haven't yet. Yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, let's begin. Jean Lin Yang. <laughs> I can't believe I just did that. <laughs> That's fine. You can do that too. No, That's fine. why did I just it's do totally that? Fine. That is just so insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you can do young because <laughs> maybe by the time this comes out, I'll have switched. Jean Luen Yang, or Jean Luen Yang, is a graphic novelist and MacArthur Award winner. He has written many celebrated graphic novels and comic books for DC and Marvel, just to name a few. His book, American Born Chinese, was the first graphic novel to ever be nominated for the National Book Award, winning several prestigious awards, and is now being adapted for a Disney Plus series. Welcome, Jean. Thank you, Nancy. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah, so great to have you. And I, I said both Jean Luen Yang and Jean Luen Yang, because right before the recording, we talked about wow how do we pronounce our names because my you know my birth name was Wang or not birth name I guess it's my the name that was translated when I immigrated but now I go by Wong yeah I, I mean I I've said Yang all my life right but when I speak Chinese of course it's Yang um, and just recently it's kind of come up so I write uh, Shang-Chi for Marvel Shang-Chi I grew up like he's he's a character that's existed in the Marvel universe since the 1970s so I was aware of him when I was a kid, and I always said Shang-Chi, because that's what everybody said. And then um, after I started writing the book, I did a couple interviews with comics media, and the Marvel representative, like after one of the interviews, he corrected me. He's like, we're actually saying Shang-Chi now, and not Shang-Chi. And it, it was a little annoying, but also he had a point, right? Because that's actually closer to how it sounds in Chinese. And And since then, I've had like a couple of conversations with other people with the last name of Yang about whether we should switch or not. It's so hard <laughs> because yeah, all your life you've been saying it one way and that's how you've been identifying. And then it's basically like saying like you yourself is not say is as Chinese as you could be or something. And and to have yeah, to grapple yeah. with that is uh is tricky, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. And and also the like the most prominent Yang right now is probably Andrew Yang. And his followers call themselves Yang Gang. They're not going to, like, Yang Gang doesn't work as well, right? Yeah. So I don't know how that's even going to work. I know. That's so funny. That's true. And so, oh, gosh, it's so hard because, yeah, I grew up, like, Wang Computer. That was, like, so old, right? And that was yeah. also a brand that was known. And even Wang Wang, right? The director, Wang Wang, um, he has gone yeah. by that. And so... 
Yeah, this is this is the tricky thing about identity. Actually, I, I love reading how your works, your your graphic novels really grapple with this kind of do I try to fit into this culture that I'm a part of, even if they're saying things about me or identifying me in ways that I don't necessarily identify with or haven't identified with, and then coming into kind of a, an identity transformation, right? So I, I, I read that in American Born Chinese. Can you say a little bit more about um, just how that is a theme in your graphic novels. Yeah, with American Born Chinese specifically, I started doing that in the year 2000. So I'd been writing and drawing comics as an adult for maybe four or five years. Uh, and I'd always had these Asian American protagonists, but their cultural heritage never played a part in the story. So I knew I wanted to do some kind of story where that was the central focus because it was such a big part of how I found my place in the world, right? I, I think like the number one thing I did growing up was try to figure out what it meant to be a, a Chinese American. Try to figure out how these two different halves of myself fit together. Like a lot of immigrants' kids, I grew up, I felt like I grew up in one world at home and another one at school. So I spoke one language at home. I went by one name at home. We said Yang at home, right? <laughs> and then at school, it was just this completely different thing. At school, it was in English. I had an uh, anglicized name. Like, I, like uh, outside of my teachers, I called adults by their first name, which was a complete taboo at home. There are all these different cultural expectations uh, in the two worlds. I, I think that for a lot of us, that is kind of like when we come of age, it's not just like figuring out the hormonal stuff and romance and all that. If you're an immigrant's kid, you're also trying to figure out how to bring these two worlds together. Yeah, and... I read that there was a quote where, you know, yeah, Asian American or just even immigrant kids, right? They they don't feel necessarily that they belong in the the world that they're in right now, fully belong or the the world of their immigrant parents, but you said you mentioned that that God, you know, chose us and intended us and that's so powerful. Yeah, well, so I grew up in a Chinese Catholic church. I'm I'm still Catholic. I actually uh go to a Korean Catholic church now. I grew up uh, I I go to the church that my wife grew up in. But when I was in college, I went to Berkeley. I was involved in InterVarsity Christian Fellowship for uh, all four of my years there. And I just saw a lot of Asian Americans converting to Christianity. Um, and I, I found it really interesting. So as I was working on American Born Chinese, I was reflecting on this. And I think for a, a group of people who feel like we don't really belong. Like we don't, we're, we're not quote unquote Chinese enough to, to belong to traditional Chinese culture. We're not quote unquote American enough to, to belong to American culture. This idea of divine intention can be really powerful. That somebody meant for you to be the way you are, you know? Uh, and, and that's something that's missing in the traditional Eastern faiths, like the, the big three faiths of China, right? Taoism, Confucianism, Buddhism. None of them really have this idea of divine intention behind, behind our identities. So I wondered, I wondered if a lot of my Asian American friends were attracted to Christianity because of that. Certainly there was a lot of um, Asian American Christian groups in college, right, where you can find community. Yeah, for me too, I think that 
um, that belonging in a, I also went to a, it was like a Korean American pastor in college, uh, although it was an Asian American, I think, um, church and, and just finding, I don't know, it was like intersection of culture. Like I would go over to their house and they would serve, you know, actually they would serve Korean food, which was familiar to me because I grew up also a lot with a lot of Koreans. Actually, I became a Christian, um, because of Koreans. So Koreans are just so passionate anyway. And so, and so, yeah, so having that kind of intersection of, of food and culture and also faith, right? I think that those three things, those things coming together really creates a very unique community of belonging. Yeah, I agree. Did you grow up in LA? I did grow up in LA, yeah. My sister-in-law is uh, a Chinese American and she grew up in LA around a a lot of Koreans. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, that well. I think of like my faith as t- totally Asian American, right? It was Asian Americans that reached yeah. out to me, and and I found yeah belonging in community through Asian Americans. It's like Asian American Christianity it is its own thing, right? Almost every Asian American I know, even you know, just maybe friend, mutual friends of ours, like they all kind of grew up in the church. I mean, it's a way I think for also immigrant communities to come together and, and find mutual interest. Yeah, I think so. And, and I think historically, Asian American churches were these hubs of cultural preservation. That was certainly true of the Chinese Catholic church that I grew up in, right? We we celebrated Lunar New Year. There's a, a Catholic holiday called the Day of the Dead, and we celebrated it in this very, very Chinese way. Very similar to like how Chinese have, have honored slash worshiped the dead for, for generations. I think in some ways, maybe in America, an Asian American church is a way of preserving culture without arousing the suspicion of the white majority, right? It's like a like the in some ways the Christian part gives cover to the culture part. Oh, that's so interesting. I think about that in your book, American Born Chinese, where you have kind of a um, a Chinese god figure speaking, quoting from the Bible, right? Yeah, in that particular scene, the dialogue and the word balloons are actually a paraphrase of Psalm 139, which is, you know, one of my favorite psalms. It, it speaks to that idea of, of divine intention. And it was actually a psalm that was kind of given to me in this little note by one of my Bible study leaders in university. So she said that she'd been praying for me one night and she came to me with this little note. And since then, like, I, I think I still have that little piece of paper in my Bible at home. I thought about that a lot, and there are three stories in American Born Chinese, and one of them is mythological. It's a retelling of the legend of the Monkey King, which is this old, old Chinese story. It was written down in a novel called Journey to the West about 500 years ago, and in Chinese culture, Journey to the West is a big deal. Like The way English speakers think of Shakespeare is how the Chinese think of Journey to the West. It's like the one of the four pillars of... Chinese literature. So in my version, I wanted to use the Monkey King and his friends to kind of talk about the Asian American experience. And I debated this for a while, but ultimately I decided to kind of blend the original story of the Monkey King with these Christian elements. In in a way, I I wanted to create like a blend of East and West because I felt like that's what we are as Asian Americans. We're a blend of East and West. I mean, I think when you bring in Christianity, it's always not necessarily in expected ways. Like it's just kind of this this mythological god speaking to his disciple, the Monkey King, right? And kind of and but I could totally tell the kind of if you're Christian and you know those verses, um, it's very familiar. But I, I also in Superman smashes the clan, I feel like you also bring in maybe some critical elements of how people can misuse 
uh, Christianity to justify maybe even like like racism or bigotry, right? You 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 actually bring it bring it in, in that way. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a, a tension for maybe Christians of color in America, right? I, I do think there are two different visions of Christ. I'm, I'm sure there are more. I'm sure there are more. But they're, they're, the, the two big ones that I think about a lot are, one is what I believe to be the, the, the Christ of the Gospels, a Christ that welcomes the outsider, and a Christ that kind of breaks through cultural norms and, and cultural borders, and, and kind of says that um, a Christ that establishes community, not based on blood, but based on something else, based on faith. And then there is this other vision of Christ that is like a white identitarian figure. And, and both of those are prevalent, right? Both of those are, are prevalent in America. So I think when you look at the Ku Klux Klan, they used a lot of um, Christian imagery in how they talked about things. And, and if you like to do that book, I went on YouTube and I just listened to a bunch of interviews with these uh, white supremacists and white nationalists. The vast majority of them use Christian language to talk about their beliefs. And I, I, like from my perspective, I think it's a selective way of, of talking about faith, right? I don't think they're talking about faith in a holistic way, at least my, my understanding of the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. They're not talking about it in that way. But it's still like you can't deny that it's deeply rooted in faith. It's deeply rooted in an image of Christ. I just think it's a different image of Christ than the one that I believe in or the one that I grew up with. It can also turn people away, right, from from having any faith. If you start to think of faith um, synonymously with with bigotry and racism in this case that um, that you're talking about in terms of the Klan. But at, at the same time, I think that I still saw in the um, in even like Superman's development as well as um, the the Asian American family that that there was there was this kind of um, desire for for diversity and unity, right? And and so I, I didn't necessarily see um, faith, you know, directly quoted or the Bible directly quoted, but I felt like there were also kind of you know, community, like what we're talking about, how how church and how faith can bring people together. So were you thinking about that in terms of kind of the protagonists in the in the book? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It was. I, I mean, I, I, I seeded it in there, but more as like, like Easter eggs. So I, I do have Superman's mom quote from the Bible, uh, and then um, when Superman's running through Smallville to to get back to his parents, he passes by a church, and there's a there's a Bible verse on the on the sign for the church. So there's bits and pieces in there. I, I think that it's a central tension in America. Like e pluribus unum is a central tension in America, right? Like whether or not, and it's a it's a tension that's existed since the foundation of the nation. Whether or not it's possible to build a nation outside of blood and soil with something other than blood and soil as as the root, as the as the foundation. And I think I think that that tension has lasted to this day. I also think that tension is reflected in attention in Christianity, right, in, in the historical Christian church. So uh, the, the Christian faith at the very beginning kind of maintained that you can build community with people who are different from you. But then if you look at the history of the church, it, it doesn't always play out that way. And even beyond that, I, would, I, I think for, for Christians of color, 
there's no denying that Christianity, the Christian faith, is a foundational piece of European culture, right? Like it's right. like it's just go to Europe and, and look around at all the churches that are around, right? So um, is like what is the Christian faith outside of white culture? I think that's a that's a really that's a really interesting question. That's something that I think we have to wrestle with. Right now, I, I teach Sunday school at that Korean, ten, uh, Korean church that my, uh, my wife uh, and I attend, and, and we're going through um, church history. So we actually haven't gotten to the, the white people yet. Like, we, we got up to Augustine. And Augustine, you know, when you see paintings and drawings of him, he's always presented as, like, a, a white guy. Uh, but from my understanding, the historical evidence is that he's probably Berber. That he's probably, which are a people group from North Africa. So he probably looked more like a modern day Egyptian than he did like a modern day European. But that's not something we often talk about. So it seems like when you look at church history, early on, it's pretty diverse. Like the thinkers, like there's another guy named Tertullian that had this really intense effect on, on Christian thinking, even though he sort of wandered away from Orthodox faith towards the end of his life. But he, but he was Berber as well. The people, they were mostly men. That's another issue. But, but at, least the, at least there was cultural diversity, it seemed like, right, to a certain extent. Yeah. I mean, I think about Christianity as originally an Eastern religion, right? Or, or yeah, a, yeah. a religion that came out of, I mean, what we call the Middle East. I mean, all these kind of terms were also that we live with and we use are yeah, coming yeah, from Europe. Right. But, um, but yeah. you know, that region is not Western. And I'm, I've, I literally just started thinking about that and, and meditating on that more and more that to think about the, the origins of Christianity, even though, yes, we acknowledge uh -huh. it as a Western religion because it has defined so much of Western European history, but you know, it, Jesus was middle, middle Eastern, right? <laughs> so yeah, Jesus was middle Eastern. Yeah. <laughs> and there are also strands of a spirituality within Christian tradition that are much more similar to what you find in the East, right? There, there are um, meditative tr traditions of meditation that are very similar to like Buddhist meditation. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that there's more overlap, and I think that maybe Asian American Christians, you know, are if we're able to kind of um, deconstruct that and think about that more, that that yeah, that there's actually more overlap in our culture with faith than than we would have imagined if we just continue to kind of you know, dwell on it in the way that maybe the United States and other Western places kind of construct Christianity. But uh, as someone, yeah, like you said, as someone who is kind of in these in-between worlds that maybe we can come to it and understand it in a way that that reclaims some of its of, of its origins, right, yeah. that are non-Western. So I wanted to ask you, if we're, since we're talking about meditation, so you, you didn't always take a very straight path that you... Uh, wanted to major in art. This is what I read. And then you instead majored in computer science based on maybe immigrant parent pressure. But then like I read that, you know, then you became an engineer and then and then you went on this five day silent retreat. Right. Talking about meditation, talking about thinking about kind of these these more, you know, not necessarily what we associate with ruckus church life. Right. A silent retreat. And then all I read was that afterwards you came out and you quit your job and you changed your life. So what happened in this five-day silent retreat, especially for those of us who are yeah. thinking, are we living our best lives? We need answers. 
<laughs> yeah, I don't, yeah, it it was it was definitely um, an important part of my life that that silent retreat. So I did graduate from college with a degree in computer science, and that was in part to please my immigrant father. But I do also like computer science myself. I got a minor in creative writing, which ultimately has proven way more useful to me in my job than my computer science degree. Completely against what my father said was going to happen. <laughs> Uh, and after that, I was a software developer for a couple of years, and I went on this silent retreat. The retreat was put on by a priest from the Chinese Catholic Church that I grew up in, and it was four or five of us. We were all in our late teens and early 20s. That was the only time I've ever done that. I've never gone on a silent retreat since then. But we really were silent for five days. We didn't talk to anybody. We did. We sat next to each other during meal times, but we didn't talk. The only time we ever talked was we would have one spiritual direction session for about an hour every day with the priest that was the retreat master. And it was kind of based on the Ignatian exercises. So out of that, I mean, it's not like I had like a flash of insight or anything. I I think it was more mundane than that. It was like getting away from the noise of the world allowed me to connect with God in myself. And during that, like, uh, simple time, right? It was a very simple time. All, all I had to do was pray and eat and sleep. During that simple time, I came to the decision that what I really wanted to do with my life was one, I wanted to become a teacher. And two, is I wanted to take comic books more seriously. And shortly after that, I did apply to different schools to become a teacher. I applied to only Catholic schools because I didn't have a teaching credential, so I couldn't teach in the public schools. And I ended up getting hired at Bishop O'Dowd High School in Oakland, California. It took, I don't know, it took like maybe four or five months for me to get that job. And I was there for 17 years. It was a wonderful experience to be a high school teacher. I really loved it. I love Gene's story of going on a silent retreat to connect with God and then switching his career path. Such a huge step in faith. I think we can all agree that in the midst of our busy schedules, the noisy world, and our endless to-do lists, it's hard to find time for silence, meditation, or even a moment to connect with God. IVP's Formatio line is dedicated to publishing books that facilitate a deep formational spiritual growth. They have a library of resources that include books on prayer, spiritual direction, and spiritual disciplines, just to name a few. One book from the Formatio line that I want to recommend is The Way Up is Down, Becoming Yourself by Forgetting Yourself by Marlena Grace. As a Puerto Rican writer, professor, and activist, Marlena is situated at the intersection of spiritual formation and justice. And what's really cool is that her book draws on the rich traditions of both Eastern and Western Christian saints on how to empty ourselves to become our true selves in God. Learn more about IVP's Formatio line at ivpress.com slash F-O-R-M-A-T-I-O. And as a listener of the Disruptors podcast, you can also get 30% off plus free U.S. shipping on any book when you use the promo code DISRUPT at ivpress.com. And if you know me, I love a good discount. I too majored in creative writing <laughs> I, and I wanted to be an art major, but I was too scared. I thought I would starve. So, so somehow English creative yeah. writing was somehow more lucrative. No, it wasn't. So, and then I also taught high school. So 
I, I was more like, I think, even the subconscious. Like, I, my mother told me that I could never make it as an artist because I would be starving. And that, that, even that kind of messaging, mm -hmm. even though it wasn't like she was telling me what to major in or anything, but I, um, I was scared. I was definitely scared to pursue that. I had that same talk with my dad. And then years later, I went to China. And I remember being at one of these touristy areas and there was this guy with a little stand and he was an artist and he would paint on the insides of these glass bottles. He'd paint like these beautiful like landscapes and like pictures of birds. And then he'd sell them to you for like, you know, $5 US or $10 US. I mean, he was, he was definitely on the edge. He was on the edge economically. And I think when my dad thought about artists, that's kind of what he had in his head. You know, people who are immensely talented, but then are still living on the edge economically. I, I do think, like I have kids now, and uh, my oldest is 17, but when he was like two or three, he picked up a pencil and he started drawing. And I remember, like I didn't want this to happen, but I did feel a certain amount of dread come over me when he started drawing, you know? Like, I had that, the the worry that my dad had, I had. I, I completely agree. So um, I have a, I have a kid and she saw someone in San Francisco selling poetry on the street, writing like poetry. And she's, that's when she decided, I'm not going to starve. <laughs> I don't want to be an English person, <laughs> even though she loves English. So it's, it's this kind of like when you see someone doing what you think you would love to do, but starving, that is like really intimidating, right? And I think it is yeah, this kind of, yeah. I think because we are, even though, I mean, I myself actually am an immigrant, but I think this kind of the survival instinct because you know it does feel like you, you talk about being on the edge economically but i think that there is this kind of edge in terms of kind of racial belonging right we're kind of on this edge it's not like things yeah, are gonna ever yeah. be easy for for me or for you know my my offspring and and there is this feeling like we got to work really hard and we got to find you know the right career i mean trusting god through it all but it's it is this kind of yeah. This, this risk. Everything seems like a risk, right? Yeah, everything seems like a risk. <laughs> but no you're, you are, I mean, I think you're living the dream that a lot of us are like, oh my gosh, you know, doing, doing what you love and, and making a living and you got the MacArthur Award, you know? So it's like, I mean, how do you feel where you are now? Like looking, like, you know, when you were young and, you know, drawing your comic books in, I think, high school, right? And like looking at you now, like what would you what would you tell your young self? I, I was just having this conversation with uh, my brother-in-law, actually. My brother-in-law is a is a Roman Catholic priest. So my my wife's little brother and uh, and he does like funerals a lot, you know, so he's thinking about death a lot. So we were talking about like the end of our career and how we feel about our careers now. And first is like, I can't believe how fortunate I've been. It's just shocking to me. Like if I could travel back in time and tell my 12-year-old self that this is what my life is like now, I, I think he would freak out. He'd be so excited he'd like pee his pants or something, you know? <laughs> it's just shocking. But at the same time, I don't know if this is like from my dad or what, but there is a part of me that's constantly waiting for everything to fall apart, you know? And, and that's what I told my my brother-in-law. It's like, I'm always like waiting for everything to fall apart. <laughs> There's a part of me that just won't go away. And maybe that's good. I don't know. But I definitely have it. Yeah, I mean, oh, gosh. I think, well, it's, it, it is this this constant 
um, flux, right? Because, I mean, right now, like, yeah. I think people wouldn't have expected there to be such a kind of rise in anti-Asian hate. And I think a lot of Asian Americans yeah, yeah. who maybe have thought, okay, my life is stable, or I'm, maybe I've reached middle class status. And yet, like, you can walk on the street and someone could attack you, right? Or insult you at any time. And yeah. it is, it is. Yeah. And then obviously during the pandemic, I think we're all kind of like fearful, like tomorrow could be our last day. We don't know. And so yeah. how do you think um, your faith helps you kind of get through these, these fears of it could yeah. all like, well, you know, fall apart? Yeah. <laughs> well, first, did you... Um... Did your parents ever chastise you for like bragging or for like being too happy about something? Did you ever have that? Um, gosh, no. But that's because they never there was they never really complimented me at all. There was like <laughs> we didn't no. like talk no. about my achievements hardly ever. It was always like okay, on to the next thing. But was that your experience, yeah, yeah, Gene? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I kind of had that too, right? I kind of had that too, and and there was. You know, there was sometimes happiness about stuff, but it always felt like it was muted or it was limited. And so when I was doing um, the, I did a graphic novel about the Box Rebellion, which took place in China in the 1900s. And I was researching like Chinese culture at the time. And I came across this thing where there's this belief that if your child was too smart or too successful, like the demons would come out and get them. So what parents would do is when they were in public, they would verbally insult their kids, like tell them they're stupid and stuff to kind of trick the demons. You know, and I don't, I don't think like, like my parents, you know, they're Catholic. They don't, they don't believe that. But I also wonder if some part of that culture kind of filtered down. And now, like we've kind of internalized that where we, we have that voice that's trying to keep the demons away, telling us that they're, that, that we're dumb, you know, like, I don't know. I don't know. I, I find myself doing that with my own kids, too, without meaning to. I find my dad's voice coming out of my mouth, like almost unconsciously. Does that also it's intersect, such a weird thing. Does that intersect, though, with Christian humility as well? You know, like, is it, is yeah. it like we shouldn't and also, you know, making ourselves, you know, more bigger than God kind of, you know, ideas of. Um, so yeah, yes, I, th I, I think there definitely is that. I think there's two things, right, like at, at play with. um with Asian Americans, maybe Chinese Americans in particular, but there is like this cultural humility that is part of Chinese culture that might even be rooted in those beliefs about demons. Like if you're too fortunate and you're too proud of it, like the the demons of misfortune will come get you. There there is that, but um, there is also Christian humility. the The priest that ran that silent retreat, he um, he once told me that. He believed that humility is simply telling the truth, is being truthful about yourself, right? Like if you're truthful about yourself, you're, you're a creature in the presence of God, right? You're not God. You're a creature in the presence of God. You're a creature who is finite. I think there's something very comforting about that. It also does push against like the false version of or the cultural version of Chinese humility where you, yeah, it just... You know, some of those some of those voices that might not necessarily be helpful that we might have inherited from our parents. I think it pushes against that. Um, so that's that's how I think try to think about things. Right. I try. Like when I when I think about the future, I try not to. Um, view it with dread, 
which I think is my natural state, is just to feel a lot of dread when I think about the future. No matter how good things are going in, in the present, there's part of me that feels a lot of dread when it comes to the future. I just try to be future, try to be truthful about, about what's going to happen in the future. Like, ultimately, my career could go up, it could go down, but it, it doesn't necessarily have any bearing with what's actually important in life, you know? I was not a sports guy when I was a kid, but I did do a book, another graphic novel recently called Dragon Hoops, which is about basketball. That was the very first time that I ever like paid attention to basketball at all because I was like a complete nerd and completely uncoordinated when I was a kid. But one of the things that struck me about basketball is that there's like this game that's played on the court. Every sports person knows this already, but it was totally new to me, you know, as a nerd. But there's a game that's played on the court and there's also this game underneath, right, that, that is not on the court. So the game that's played on the court, you're trying to score as many points as you can. The game that's underneath, it's like about building camaraderie with your, your teammates. It's about developing your own character. It's about becoming a better person. And you can actually lose every single game that you play on the court and still win the game underneath, right? But the thing is, if you go on the court and you don't try to win, you don't win the game underneath. You have to try to win. And I think like, again, every sports person knows this, but like all of life is kind of like that. Like my career, I do want it to go well, but um, but if everything falls apart, I can still win the game underneath, right? The game underneath is my relationship with God. Uh, but I still like, like, I can't like be, I feel like I'm still required to give my books and, and the stories I'm trying to tell my best. Like, even if it fails, I have to try to give my best because that's a requirement for winning the game underneath. So I end with each of these podcasts asking the guests to share something that you're reading or watching or consuming or even producing, creating yourself that is disruptive in some way, in a, in a way that's good, it disrupts the, the, the culture and... Um, and something that I think that our listeners would would benefit from, you know, knowing about. Well, I really like this comic book series called Bitter Root. I think it's amazing. It's from Image Comics. It's about a an African American family. It's set in the um, 1920s, I believe. And in this fantasy world, hate turns you into a monster. So this family of herbalists kind of creates these concoctions that can counteract the hate. So there's like the fun monster fighting part of the story, but it's also about something deeper underneath, something that we're wrestling with in America. Nancy, what an amazing interview. You guys talked about so many different things, so many aspects of your life. What was something that surprised you about this? Well, like I said in the beginning of, of this episode, I was always struck by how humble he seemed. And so I wanted to ask him about humility, right? And then he really surprised me because he talked about um, like humility in terms of uh, being afraid, like that demons are gonna like take away our, I guess, our success. Our children's <laughs> luck. <laughs> right, our children, our, our, our progeny, or even our, like just feeling like you, you will never, you can't say anything good about yourself because you're going to be a target, right? And, and that's crazy because after winning a National Book Award, a MacArthur Genius Award, you would think you should have no more insecurities in life ever. <laughs> right. If you're the, if you're certified as a genius and you get, what is it, like $600,000 to do anything you want, 
that's pretty much the pinnacle of achievement, right? But he never really like comes off as, hi, I'm a genius or anything like that. But then I thought that was just some sort of innate humility. But now I realize he says it's, it's like this, there's actually some, I guess, cultural, it's, li it's linked up with culture, right? So and it you affects pointed culture. Out that it also has to do with our Christian virtues and beliefs about humility and the role of humility. Yes, I love that idea of humility as um, not false, right? That true, that this true humility is actually a, a true knowledge of ourselves, which I don't know, it's just, it's, I feel like it's, it's released me from something. I don't know what yet, but released me. You know, at the end, I'm not like a sports person or anything, but I really like the idea of the true game, you know? And it's like to recognize that what's going on in the world is like, we ain't about that game. You know, we're about a different game, but what's the real game? And you have to somehow like figure out how to act and to be true and to like play the game to the best of your ability. But you always have to keep your eye on the fact that, wait, some of this stuff, that's not the true game. Yeah, that your achievements in whatever career that you're doing, it's it, that's only one layer, right? Something below that is, kind of a deeper commitment to faith, deeper commitment to humanity, to to others. And, to, that, and perhaps the, team, the more right? truer the one. Yes, for sure. That is Because I think that's the part that's interesting to me. Um, you know, being Asian American, coming from a family who's like, you know, like they really care about like making sure you have material safety and wellness, right? And then to say, well, what's the true game? You know? Right, like all of our lives, it's like getting that 100% or that, you know, extra credit. on the SAT. I, I know it's not 1600 anymore, but whatever it is. <laughs> the perfect score, the... The MacArthur Genius Award. That's right. Well, we have we both have PhDs. We're both high achieving, you know, folks who who have, I think, played that game all of our lives, right. right? But as I get older, as I continue to live life, I definitely want to do things that are meaningful, that will actually have lasting legacy on on bettering human existence, right? I mean, that sounds like also like not humble, but that is a goal. That's my goal. It doesn't mean that I'm going to achieve it at all, but I feel but you'll like- you'll die trying. <laughs> yeah, so I'll, I don't know. I don't know if I want to be a martyr, <laughs> but I will die someday. And so the whole time I will be trying. Songs in a bottle, how we battle all the barriers, right? Some drink, some color their hair every night. Some try to stand out, some try to act white. Found music, but I've never been the stereo type. New eyes break old lies. New skin needs new wine. Thank you for listening to The Disruptors. The Disruptors is hosted by me, Nancy Wong Yoon. You can follow me at Nancy W Y U E N. Our theme song is New Eyes by Jason Chu. Our executive producers are Helen Lee and Andrew Bronson. Produced by Richard Clark, Cray Allred, and Myla Kim. <laughs>